This is the Brew World Order Podcast. Welcome to the Brew World Order Podcast, the podcast where we talk to brewery owners and ask questions about owning a brewery so that future brewery owners can learn a thing or two. My name is Mike Curtin, and if you haven't subscribed yet, then damn, I must have a lot of enemies. This is episode 69, and don't get filthy about it, or do. I don't really care. In this episode, I sit down with Mark Osborne of Adroit Theory Brewing Company in Percival, Virginia. Mark tells us how a lack of fulfillment at his prior job led to his decision to open his brewery, how they came up with the name for Adroit Theory, and how a visit to Stout's Brewing Company in Adamstown, PA turned into a great learning experience when Ed Stout, the owner, gave Mark and his wife a breakdown of what it took to have a successful brewery. I had a similar experience from a successful podcast host by the name of Rob Dial. He gave me a lesson on what worked for him and what I needed to do to make my podcast a success. It's little moments like that from people who already went through the trials and tribulations of what may lie ahead for you can really mean so much. And as they're giving this advice, they may not realize how impactful it may be. So with that being said, I would love to thank Rob Dial for the words he gave me that day. Thank you so much, brother, and continued success to you. And now that I got all heartfelt and emotional and weird, uh, it's time you sit back, crack open a beer, and enjoy the podcast. Mark Osborne grew up in Virginia and attended James Madison University, where he received a business degree. From there, he attended Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to get his MBA. While there, he would spend time with his classmates, and when they discussed their futures of attending law school or going into the corporate world, Mark realized that wasn't the life he wanted for himself. He would go into the construction world and start up his own successful contracting business, which he would run for 15 years. Back in college, Mark would find a passion for craft beer after spending time abroad and trying his first English ale. That passion would continue well into his married life, where him and his wife, Christina, would attend festivals and go on beer vacations together. Opening a brewery was never something he wanted to do, but as Mark slowly approached his 40th birthday, he realized he wanted a new challenge in life. He got to thinking about what he liked to do, and drinking beer just happened to be at the top of that list. Mark and his wife decided to start learning about brewing and the brewing industry, as well as attending some classes at Siebel Institute in Chicago. They were still fairly uneducated about this new venture, but decided to dive headfirst into the game. They hired a home brewer, got a half-barrel Sabco system, and rented a space close to their home in 2013. And in January of 2014, they opened their doors as a Droid Theory Brewing Company. And Mark is here with me today. Mark, how's it going, man? Yeah, it's doing good. How are you? All right. Not bad at all. Can you tell me a little bit uh, about that aha moment for you where you finally decided, I want to open a brewery. This is it. Um, Sure. I was uh, 38. And I was uh, I, had a, I was running a successful contracting business, and you know it was uh, a good business, but it wasn't as satiating, both artistically, creatively. It wasn't challenging in terms of the business side of it. Right. And I saw forty on the horizon and wanted to do something different. So I sat down, thought about what I loved. I loved beer, and I got uh, I just got that seed in my head, and I thought about it for about six months before I said anything. And then I told my wife while I was, while we were on vacation in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, she thought it was a fantastic idea that I should pursue further. So, you know, when that, when she gave me the green light is when I uh, got started in earnest and, you know, conceptualizing what the brewery would be and, and what it was that we were trying to do as a brewery and as a brand. That's awesome. 
So during that process of opening your brewery from the from the culmination of that idea to open a brewery to the moment you actually opened the door, what would you say was the most challenging part for you? The the legal dynamics right. just have to be changing, completely unrelated to me. Uh, from when I got the idea in Virginia, you if you wanted to start a brewery, you either needed to start a brew pub, you know, run a restaurant and sell your beer direct to consumer, or you would start a production brewery where you were not allowed to have a tasting room, right. you know, so you had hundred percent of your money from distribution. But about six months into the planning, uh, Virginia changed their laws and, uh, Hardy Woodburn, you might be familiar with, they're in Richmond. They were basically the people that were the catalyst to getting the laws changed. And, uh, as soon as they changed the law, I mean, it was a game changer. You could basically run, you know, a traditional tasting room where you could sell everything direct to consumer. Um, so that I think was, you know, the, the biggest, you know, thing that happened because that allowed us to basically pivot and focus more on running a small scale brewery, but a full scale tasting room. Gotcha. Where did you come up with the name for your brewery? Because I'm sure people ask that all the time. Uh, they do. It, it actually, it's funny because it wasn't going to be our name. We had a different name picked out and, um, very glad we did not go with that. Uh, <laughs> in hindsight, but uh, we're uh, we had you know gone through the process of like you know starting to register it as a trademark and, and what have you, and um, our lawyer who was doing the due diligence discovered there was like a wine brand that was just going to be too similar, and he's like, "Don't do it, don't do it." Pick a new name. So gotcha. my wife and I were on vacation in uh, uh, Rehoboth, Delaware, and we spent the day at Dogfish Head, and as I'm sure you can imagine, we were feeling pretty good. Right. When we out of that joint and uh, we went back um, to the hotel and pulled out a thesaurus and we're like, well, let's pick our new name. And so we started with the A's and my wife got to the word adroit, which I had never heard before in my life. I had no idea what it meant, but she told me what it meant, which is basically being skilled with your hands or being very clever. And I thought to myself, that sounds exactly like what a brewer does. Right. Being skilled with their hands and coming up with clever, clever ideas. So uh, that part was easy. The theory was just I tacked it on after we settled on Adroit, uh, you know, to kind of represent the idea that we really weren't a traditional brewery making traditional two-style beers. They were more theoretical. So Adroit Theory was born and uh, off to the races we went. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh uh, you were open for about, uh, give or take, six years. I think it was just over six years before all these shutdowns and everything happened with COVID. How did your company go about dealing with that, and what did you have to do to pivot to make things work? Uh, so, yes, it was obviously uh, a bit scary, uh, as I'm sure you can imagine. Right. But we'd already had been shipping beer to direct-to-consumer in Ohio and Virginia and a couple other places. Right. Um, we had done that early, like literally day one that we opened the brewery. So we were already very comfortable selling beer and mailing it to people. So we ramped up that side of the business. We kind of did it yeah, whenever we had time or energy, but now like that became a major focus. So that became a very nice revenue stream. And then, thank God, uh, the year prior, I had uh, gone to Europe to meet with distributors and get things set up. And so we already had relationships set up and we're already selling beer internationally. And while, you know, and this was made later in the pandemic, right. um, it allowed us to sell beer, you know, at wholesale internationally, whereas they were opening up markets, even though it might still be shut down in America, you know, it, it allowed us to kind of balance that out. 
And then the third thing was um, we do business with a company called Tavor uh, out in Seattle, Washington. And right. again, they do direct to consumer. We've done business with them, you know, for three or four years prior to the pandemic. And their business, of course, you know, went through the roof. And so they were buying quite a bit of stuff from us. So you hate saying it because I know a lot of people had tough times, but, you know, <laughs> the pandemic was great for us. Like it worked out. It worked out real well. And, of course, everyone on the planet is drinking like fish. Right. So. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, for it, it, it went either way. It was either really uh, lucrative or things went really well or people really enjoyed it. Some people are, you know, antisocial and they're like, this is great. Yeah, no, like, yeah, we, we got rid of all of our glassware and right. tasting room or everything in plastic cups. It was right. fantastic. Because right. at the end of the night, you just throw the cups away and blah. And yeah. You know, no washing, no, you know. Right. Right. Anyway, so I don't want to be flippant about it because obviously it was a little stressful at the time. But, of course. Uh, it, it worked out well uh, for us. So, yeah, sounds like it. Pandemics aside, obviously, what's uh, something you never thought you were going to have to deal with when opening a brewery? <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, so first of all, I got to be very careful what you say in podcasts uh, and interviews uh, because sometimes we'll come back to haunt you. So, I have a podcast that I made uh, in 2014, and uh, you know, I was very adamant at the time that you know we. We were on this, you know, direct-to-consumer model, and I would never sell my beer to Costco or a grocery store or any places like that. Right. And uh, <laughs> fast forward, uh, we now sell beer to Costco and, you know, stores <laughs> and all these other places. And so once a year, the guy heckles me on Twitter about that. But anyway, I, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's a business, right? I think first and foremost, uh, you know, you know, making sure that you have the realization that as fun as it is being in the beer industry, at the end of the job, it is work, um, and, and making sure that it's not just a hobby. Because I think when I first started, you know, the first couple of years, it, it was really a hobby. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I, yeah, we ran it like a business. Yes, we spent money branding and, and really got a building that stuff. But at the end of the day, like cost wasn't a big concern. Like who we hired wasn't as big of a concern as it should have been. Um, you know, building, rep, you know, things that are repeatable, you know, quality control and things like that, um, which all came later kind of on the fly, but it would have been better to give more thought to that at the beginning. Right. You, you, t- you talk about costs. How did you go about uh, finding the capital to fund your business? Uh, well, luckily I had another business. <laughs> right. That's that true. very profitable. Uh, so I was able to basically self-fund myself. That's um, awesome. I did eventually get a bank loan um, to do a little bit of more advanced build-out than what we started with. But I mean, we started the brewery with, and this was not all like at one time, this is over like a year and a half basis, but I mean, you know, less than $250,000. Right. Uh, a lot less. Uh, like We really bootstrapped things and not spend a ton of money. Um, but we're able to open and then open, you know, a reasonably successful tasting room um, that didn't cost a lot to operate. You know, we were contract brewing, which was a fixed cost and right. the rent and the tips. And that was it. So um, it wasn't like, you know, what everybody else does, which is kind of about they raise, you know, $2 million, $4 million, whatever. They do a big build out, build a you know, beautiful tasting room production brewery that's well thought out well laid out uh, we didn't do any of that we we did it all very inexpensively and then we did buy stuff you know as we went along so like we have you know a little bit better of a brew house now than we did at the beginning but you know we did it three years into, into brewing you know what i mean not day one so it allowed us to basically pay for things as we went along gotcha so 
what do you think was one of the hardest adjustments you had to make when becoming the owner of a brewery? Uh, two things. Number one is for the first, gosh, six years, well, six years, maybe five, first five years of doing the brewery, I was still running the other business. So okay. Trying to, trying to do two things at the same time is you know, very difficult, particularly as the brewery grew. Like it wasn't a big deal the first year or two, but then the brewery started to grow. It actually started, you know, making, you know, measurable amount of beer. Um, it, it became very challenging to do both. Um, and then number two is, you know, and I'm the first person to admit this, I knew basically nothing. Right. The first day we were in business, you know, and I still don't know as much as probably every other business owner, but I do know a hell of a lot more than I did. Um, so as a result, I had to rely on other people to help me make smart decisions. And some of those decisions were not very smart, unfortunately. Right. Um, but everything from recipe development to like laying out the brewery, you know, I relied on other people. Say, yes, this is where you should, this is where you should put your keg washer, you know, like, oh, okay. Right. Yeah, okay. Kind of makes sense. And of course, now the keg washer is in the most inopportune place you could possibly imagine. Like you couldn't think of a worse place to put it if you tried. Right. Uh, <laughs> And, and then again, you know, having to go back and redo things is way more expensive, you know, after things have been installed. Oh, of course. So like, floor drain it, like, well, hmm. <laughs> uh, you know, but, you, you know, so now you have to spend the money if you want to move it and fix it. Right. So out of all those things that you've learned, what do you think is the biggest lesson uh, you've learned? There's a lot. <laughs> I probably... Uh, you know, I probably would have focused a little bit more on making sure that I had professional level help day one okay. versus, you know, some people that, you know, intended to give you good advice. Uh, it would have been better to have, you know, like a professional consultant gotcha. versus, you know, winging it. That and I probably should have focused a little bit more on the recipe side of things, I think. Day one, you know, by 2017, I was very much involved in, you know, exactly how we were making the beers and how we were making our adjunct projects and what beers were coming out and you know, the seasonality of it and all those types of factors. But from 2014 to 2016, I basically let my brewers make those types of decisions, you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, and I think once 2017 came around, we had a much stronger focus in terms of what beers we were making and, you know, where did they fit in the portfolio? And, you know, are, is this the best beer we can make versus is this the funnest beer that we can make? You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah. What's one of the qualities that you possess that makes you a great business owner? <laughs> well, that's, is that's predicated on the assumption that I am a great business owner. <laughs> I do try. Give it the old college try, but, um, right. I mean, I think, you know, I think sometimes, again, I think, my strongest suit is on the creative concept side of our business. You know what I mean? Like, like who is a droid theory? What is a droid theory? What does it look like? And what does it feel like? Um, not just from a customer perspective, but to work here, to visit the tasting room, to sample our beer in Japan. Like, how can you build something that transcends you? You know what I mean? Because there's tons of brands where, like, the founder is you know, the face of the company. So like Dogfish Head has Sam and Stone right. has Greg, but a joint theory doesn't have anybody. You know what I mean? I stay behind the scenes. Gotcha. So I want to make sure that I can build something that, that looks and feels and breathes a certain way that has nothing to do with me. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing that I brought to the table. And I think that combined with making high quality beer 
is what has made us successful. It's definitely not our location. It's definitely not our price point. It's definitely not, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the local community getting on board, supporting us. Like, you know, we, we do a very specific thing. Um, but people all over the world who are into what we're doing seem to appreciate it. So I do think that that was uh, a big thing that I brought to the table. Right. When you talk about people like Sam from Dogfish and, there's obviously big names for the faces of these companies. Who do you think inspired you the most in the beer industry? I mean, I don't have a personal relationship with any of these people. Although right. Sam always waves. is very friendly when we see him at, at festivals. But uh, right. um, in terms of like breweries that we respect and like try to emulate, I mean, my personal favorite brewery of all time is Firestone Walker. And, you know, I think, you know, one day we could hope to do something even similar to them would be a huge achievement for us. Uh, but in terms of like how to, how they structured themselves and the way they do things, we definitely patterned it off of how Patrick Rue at the brewery did things um, in terms of, you know, really, really kind of over the top beers that are high ABV, but selling them obviously at distribution and its tasting room, but also through the idea of exclusivity. You know what I mean? That yes. Clubs and rare limited editions and, you know, one of a hundred, those types of things was a huge uh, inspiration in terms of, you know, how we wanted to sell our beer. We're not that interested in selling a thousand cases of beer. We'd rather sell a hundred cases of beer at a very high price point to the right people. That's a great thing, man. I, I love that idea too. I believe it was them that I signed up with and it was like, yeah, we're, we're closed down for now, but try next time. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. You know, the, the, the velvet rope outside the nightclub. Yeah. You right. Know? So I mean, you want to get in so bad. <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that email, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you jump on it when you do. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, they, they're, they're excellent. I mean, they're masters at it. Absolutely. I mean, you, know, you know, if we can do 10% of what they can do, that's, I think that would be successful, but uh, I think I think that's just a, a very very clever model. Another company that I think that um, not as much of an influence, but somebody that I think is very interesting is Omnipolo. You know, the Swedish company about just the idea that that they are brewing all over the world and making these wackadoodle beers. You know what I mean? And distributing them all over the place, but very shallow. You know what I mean? Like. No store gets more than like a case of beer, right? But it's all over the world. You know what I mean? Um, I like I like a wide but shallow distribution model. It's awesome. Have to go from store to store to store to to try and get more of it. Exactly. Exactly. Some people do. That's very different. Most people they always say own your backyard. You know what I mean? You know, so these breweries that don't sell a drop outside of their local state, and half of them are selling fifty plus percent of beer within five miles of their brewery. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of you said that, without a doubt, you know, we, we don't do that. Like our beer is actually exceedingly difficult to get in Virginia. Like you'd have to travel from the brewery, from, from where our brewery is located, you have to drive 14 miles to the nearest place that sells our beer. Interesting. Very exclusive. I'm sure, you know, you put a lot of effort into your brewery and you're constantly thinking of ways to make things better and whatnot, but how important is a mental break for you and what does that look like? Well, pre-pandemic, it was pretty simple. <laughs> right. In, in my other business, we I used to take off basically like six weeks in a row. Like we'd leave in January and come back at the end of February, recharged and ready to, you know, kick ass for the next year. Right. Um, a little bit more difficult because brewery, you know, there's some seasonality to it, but it's nothing like the 
the seasonality of my other business. So that part has been a little bit difficult, um, you know, and as I'm sure you can imagine, all of our air quotes vacation end up turning into a air quotes work vacation. So like we'll get invited to a festival. I'll be like, well, <laughs> let's, let's go to the festival. Uh, spend an extra two or three days, you know, right. In that city or whatever it is. Uh, unfortunately, you know, for the last three years, that's basically been it. It's been very difficult to have downtime. But uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, 2022 is the year. We'll see. Right. How do you define success? And was there a moment that sticks out in your head that kind of highlights like things were going in the right direction for you? I mean, I think we're reasonably successful. I don't think we're like, successful. And, you know, I, I have right. no worries. I have uh, working on the grind every single day, trying to make it better every single day. Um, I mean, I do look at a multitude of things. One, obviously, is, you know, just you know, profitability in the company, you know, revenue, you know, those types of traditional metrics as well. And you know, things are reasonably work, moving in the right direction. I do look at untapped scores, which I know is not the Bible or the gospel, but you know, right. making sure that scores are consistent because I do think with a big enough data pool. You know, it, it evens itself out and actually has a pretty reasonable representation of what people thought and make sure that our scores are, you know, improving as we move along and, and that, you know, things are trending in the right direction. I also didn't look at, you know, how prestigious of events do we get invited to? And, you know, as of late, we've actually been getting invited to things that like, I'm like, wow, you know, this is fantastic. Like, I've been waiting, you know, I've been waiting for this. For right. Long. Time and then you finally get the invite. So like we're pouring at the brewery's anniversary party. It's like woo, you know. <laughs> that's exciting to me. Like to me, that's successful. Um, we're going to the Mee Keller event in uh, in Denmark. And, that's awesome. Know, again, like you know, like they're very picky about who they who they who they send. You know, for us, that is definitely um, you know one of, one of the many things that you know just makes it feel like you know you're being you're moving in the right direction. Right. Yeah. For sure. What do you think's been the biggest change? Uh, in the last five years in the industry for you? When we started the brewery, with the exception of, you know, Hetty Topper, you know, hazies weren't really a thing, you know, ginormous shift away from West Coast to, to that. And, and then all of the, you know, just, you know, sweet, sweet beers, you know, whether you call pastry stouts or, you know, fruity, fruity sours or whatever. I mean, you know, those I think were big, big, you know, like consumer driven shifts. I think potential swinging back in the opposite direction, but, you know, trying to make sure you're on tune with what people are interested in is very important. And then, you know, I think as of late, to be frank with you, I do think, you know, I'm not terribly worried about what we're doing in that it's very niche. You know, you do wonder, you know, is, is the excitement level for craft brewery waning as, you know, there's so many new breweries and so many places that sell craft beer and so many events just can are there enough customers to support that right you know long term so a little concerned about that luckily we're very niche and 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 very small and focused but you know these other places that you know have these big huge expensive tasting rooms big production facilities that you i do wonder if they're going to be sitting idle here sooner than later gotcha yeah i think you might have mentioned it before but what was your gateway beer into the craft beer world is there a specific one that stands out when you were like, oh, this so, is... um, I mean, I touched on, you know, you know I, I don't call it macro, but like, you know, big micro brew, like Sierra Nevada, right. you know, fish, people like that. But really, 
I'd say the one that stuck with me the most is there's a brewery in Pennsylvania, in Adamstown, Pennsylvania, called Stouts Brewing. Okay. Um, Carol and Ed Stout are the owner. They make German style beers. Uh, they're you know very nice, very nice beers. But uh, when my wife and I were uh, just getting to the point where we're you know gonna start planning the brewery, we went and visited them, and we were at the bar you know enjoying their beers, and we sat down, and we didn't know it, but the owner Ed Stout was sitting right next to us, <laughs> and you know. So we're like, oh, you know, we're going to start a brewery, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm sure he's heard that a million times. But he, he, he gave us this half an hour lecture where we didn't say a word. He just talked the whole time about how you have to drink beer fresh. And, you know, it has to be local. And you, you can't, you know, you can't do things other than make fresh, high quality beer and, you know, do it in the traditional German standards. But for like 30 minutes, this, you know, tirade, if you will, just uh, about it. But I remember just sitting there drinking uh, his his beer, uh, he had one called Smooth Operator. Right. It was like this Maybach hybrid thing that he'd made. And uh, anyway, so that was definitely something that, you know, it was early on. This isn't like, you know, probably 12 years, well, like 11 years ago. But, you know, the idea of, of this high-quality beer, uh, drinking it with him, was something that definitely uh, stuck with me to this day. That's awesome, man. Yeah, getting a little lesson from uh, one of the pros is awesome. Yeah, exactly. And... What's next for your brewery? What does the future look like? We uh, we decided in the last three months that we're not moving. There was a possibility that we might because our landlord was selling the building. We wanted to purchase it. Unfortunately, we could not come to an agreement on the price. So a new owner moved in, so I have a new landlord. So uh, we'll be here for at least the next four and a half years. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's settled. Okay. Um, and then uh, – you know, we're going to uh, continue um, the big, <laughs> this is going to be shocking because I probably should have mentioned this at the beginning. So up until literally three months ago, like we didn't have any flagship beers. Like we did not make the same beer twice. Right. We would revisit beers from time to time, but it might be a year or two or three years in between. And by the time we got around to redoing it, oftentimes we were rewriting the recipe, you know, revamping the recipe to bring it in line with, you know, things that we had learned in the interim period. But for us, we, uh, we decided, you know, I figured after eight years of being in business, maybe we should have a couple of, a couple of beers that people could count on getting from us. So right. in January, we uh, launched four beers that we were going to attempt to have on draft, if not 100% of the time, you know, the vast majority of time with, you know, not huge you know, structural changes from one iteration to the next. So that uh, was well received, still making tons and tons of, you know, new beers every single week, every single month, but, uh, you know, a focus on delivering some quality beers that people have loved on a regular basis is a huge change for us. So I see more of that in the future uh, versus less. Very cool. And if somebody came to you, and asked you for advice on opening their own brewery, what would you tell them? Well, I'd say, do you have a small fortune? You've <laughs> <laughs> heard that wine joke. Um, <laughs> anyway, I, I think I think most people I talk, I met a guy on Saturday, started his own brewery, same thing. You know, I'm like, are you, you know, independently wealthy and have money to throw away? And he's like, no. I was like, okay, good. Then you should contract brew. I think, I think people discount contract brewing and think that they have to own their own equipment, uh, you know, 100% hands-on brew their own beer um, day one. And I, I don't think people should do that. I think I think they should know how to brew and have, you know, good recipes, good processes, 
and then contract group, you know, like again, open up for business, have a small system. It doesn't cost a ton of money, right. make, make your own batches, but really use that as a pilot and let somebody else bankroll the, uh, all the equipment. You know what I mean? You get in there, you brew on their system, you do exactly the way you want it. You know, you make sure that it's high quality before you release it and then release it. But that way, day one, you can have beer in quantity to sell at your tasting room and then, but not have the huge bank note to pay for all that equipment that you just financed. Right. Someone else did. So that's what I would suggest that and making sure that you select a very smart locations that you can sell ideally 100%. Uh, or as close to 100% as you can, direct to consumer. You know what I mean? Like, there's no money to be made in distribution. So uh, focus on your tasting room sales and make sure that you've got a location. Or make the best beer in the world where it doesn't really matter, you know, like uh, Hill Farmstead, where it doesn't matter where you're located. They're just going to show up. Yeah, right. People <laughs> are just going to come from all over the world to come see you. Well, exactly. But unless you're unless you're doing that, which, again, I think, you know, you know, the amount of competition that's out there these days is like zero chance of that happening. But making sure that you can sell 100% of what you make at your tasting room. Gotcha. And did you happen to have a funny story for us? Uh, so I gave some thought. I, I apologize. I don't have like a ha-ha funny story. That's all right. It's fine. I think of, but I will tell you one that was you know generally amusing and more of an ironic thing. So we just celebrated this past Saturday our uh, our anniversary um, called Dawn of a Dark Day. And uh, back in 2016, we threw our Dawn of a Dark Day party. Our, we started business in January. And as you can imagine, uh, the weather in January is a huge, huge issue. So we had some successful anniversary parties. But then uh, this, uh, this 2016 party came and they're calling for snow. And we're like, oh, no, you know, like snow's going to kill the party because it's outside. The party's outside right. in a tent. Right. So the the closer we get to the party, the more certain it looks like that we're going to get snow. And we're just like, oh, oh, no. That's, oh, no. So finally, you know, like Friday morning, we decide to postpone the party. And my wife and I leave like we flee to get away from this ensuing uh, snowpocalypse. And we go down to, uh, to Myrtle Beach and we literally just escaped. You know, like the snow is literally like following us down there. Right. We barely get there. And uh, the next morning, which is Saturday today, the party was supposed to be, I turn on Good Morning America, and the first story is this huge blizzard that's hit, like, Washington, D.C. <laughs> and I remember, like, oh, my God, like, they're covering, I can't believe they're covering this. And they cut to the live feed of this poor person, and they're like, I'm reporting from Percival, Virginia, and this is the biggest snowstorm that they've ever seen. <laughs> I'm in downtown Percival, and there's 39 inches on the ground. And I was just like, holy crap, like... <laughs> I can't believe like my party's always be happening like literally right yeah, now. Yeah, right. It's, it's on the national news. So anyway, that's not crazy. Not funny, but it was it was amusing. You just got blasted on the day that you were supposed to celebrate. Yeah, yeah. Well, at least you got to celebrate in warm, warmer weather. At least you know. Well, we moved our party this past party to March, which was some pandemic driven, like you know, because we couldn't have the party in January. Right. So I thought, hey, let's move it. Let's move it to the spring, right? So we picked a day on the calendar that, you know, there weren't a ton of events on, you know, because we're just picking an arbitrary date. And wouldn't you know it, it was 70 degrees on Friday, and the day of my party, in March, it was 30 degrees, and it started snowing in the middle of the party. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I can't get away from the snow. Yeah, go figure. I moved my party to July. Yeah, I think that would be a better idea. <laughs> a little warmer, just a little bit. A little warmer. So I have a little segment called Quick Fire Five. It's five quick questions, beer related. 
uh, somebody comes into your tap room, what's one of the beers you recommend they try? As part of our selecting, you know, some new core beers, one of them was a Czech style Pilsner. And I think it's always a good idea, even if you are a professional and you know what you're getting into, I think it's always a good idea to start with the air quotes simplest beer at a new brewery. Right. Because that way you'll tell how good of a brewer they are because there is no way to hide. You know, when you start drinking these big stouts and, you know, things like that, there's tons of room to hide flaws. But when you're drinking a, you know, brilliantly clear, you know, classic style like a Pilsner. Yeah, right. It, Nice it crisp beer. So that's why I always suggest to start, and that's a beer that we have a good, you know, or will have a good portion of the year, and it's a great way to start, and it's a great beer to sip on. It's only five percent while you sample the other twenty-five beers that are twelve percent. Right, right. A little palate so, cleaner. Yeah, a little palate cleanser is <laughs> something to enjoy in between in between dishes. Right. If you can collaborate with any other brewery on a beer, who would it be? Mm, good question. Um, of course I'm going to say Firestone Walker because they are my favorite brewery but I think that would be a terrible fit (laughs) and we've already brewed beers with people that like are great you know like Burial for instance you know like they're very similar to us I think Um, so breweries that we have uh, not brewed beer with that we'd be very interested in meeting include Abomination Brewing okay uh, and also Widowmaker I think would be a good fit we're supposed to be going to an event in June where they're both going to be at so who knows maybe we'll uh it will meet. Remains to be seen. Okay. Favorite style of beer? Uh, it's fallen out of fashion, uh, but I love black IPAs or black IPAs? Beers, depending on where uh, where you're from. But I, I think it's an underrated style. I love Wookie Jack. That was the beer that got me the most excited. Followed by Stone's 15 year anniversary. I just love it. I mean, I love a roasty, dark as night, black, inky beer that smells like an IPA. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, I just love that. I so. think one, one of my favorite black IPAs was, it's not really popular and it's really hard to get. Um, Blue Point made it and it was called Toxic Sludge and it was... Oh, I've had Toxic Sludge. I have had that. So I, good. Um, so good. Yes. Really good. But I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Yes. Barrel aged, imperial, or both? Both. Uh, I mean, I like a classic stout. Right. I like barrel aged. I mean, obviously the brewery, a brewery that we you know emulate. Right. Obviously. As that, that on lockdown, we've done some really interesting barrel aging projects ourselves, and they're obviously way better than the un or non barrel aged version. But the third category to me is uh, emulating barrels. So like we do a lot of stouts that they're not barrel aged, but you know we're adding adjuncts and doing you know conditioning of beer on various ingredients to create the rich depth flavor that you get from barrel aging, and you do it in a fraction of the time. So. Don't discount that. Gotcha. And you have one keg of beer to hold you over for a two-week quarantine. Which beer were you choosing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love stouts. Obviously, I love black IPAs. But right now, I'm on a little bit of a hazy kick, which, you know, obviously is beer that we make. They can sometimes get a little little much, but uh, we have a... uh, one of our beers called EBK, which is a hazy dipper. And it is as close to perfection where I'm comfortable not tweaking the recipe anymore. And I can drink that every single day. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Mark, that's that's all I got for you, man. Uh, that was fine. Wow, that was quick. Yeah. 
I appreciate it. Thank you for taking out the time to be on the uh, podcast. No problem. I appreciate you having me. I look forward to uh, hearing the finished product. Yeah. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew Old Order Podcast here with Mark Osborne, owner of Adroit Theory Brewing Company in Purcellville, Virginia. Thank you, man. All right. Thank you. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Mark Osborne, owner of Adroit Theory Brewing Company in Purcellville, Virginia. Whether you're passing through, you live in the area, just visiting a friend nearby, you should definitely check them out, especially if you like high-alcohol beers with amazing flavor. Also, give them a follow on social media while you're at it to find out what they're brewing. Every other Sunday, I'll be releasing a new episode, so subscribe and you'll never miss one. Also, give us a follow on social media because there's a lot of new stuff coming from the Brew World Order podcast that you should be checking out. Trust me on this one. I'm Mike Curtin for the Brew World Order podcast. You stay safe out there.